Nirvana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver, Washington at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, Professor of Economics at Oregon State University, and with me as always is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Jeff's looking curiously at the microphone recording equipment. Yeah, I thought I would look to see... That we were actually recording this time? No, more that we were recording at the same levels. I'm looking at the levels on the mic. Uh, Our levels are always good. There's never been any problem with our levels. (laughs) There's never any problem with our audio, as (laughs) listeners can attest. That's right. I can't believe... uh, Did they even broadcast the the super terrible one? You know, I don't know if they broadcast it. I would not have. It was... was, uh, Our apologies. That was not our finest (laughs) work. That's Jeff's apology. That's his fault. That's not mine. Man, my equipment's good. Uh, I do blame Zencaster. This this bad boy that I'm looking at and pointing to right now, this mic, is a good mic. Good. As long as it battery holds up, we're good. Uh, I, so the listeners won't know that a couple of podcasts ago kept dying on us. I think they probably will know. <laughs> well, it's because I had it plugged in, and for some reason, even though I had it plugged in, it was going off the battery, which died. It kept dying on us. Uh, but I took the battery out. Oh, See, you MacGyvered the thing. I, exactly. So the <laughs> fact that it's going, it's got to be oh, good. the All juice right. from the wall. Well, good Lord willing, we'll have a podcast this week. That's right. By the way, I had one of these moments. So last week, uh, and I have these moments in general because I'll Zoom with uh, people from around the world. But last week we had this wonderful discussion with Gareth Young uh, from Glasgow of uh, uh, Apocal Brewing, mm-hmm. uh, and we did a Zoom, and he was he was in Glasgow, and we were here in Portland. Uh, and this, got, this is amazing. Isn't yeah, it? and the 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 kiddos never understand. Of course, they shouldn't and wouldn't. I didn't understand back in my era, but it made me think of all things of when we uh, did our junior year abroad in India, and to call home was this. Uh, amazing thing. Now India All day ordeal. Now India was a little special because they had, during a moment of technological progress, had launched a telecommunication satellite. I think it was called Intelsat, if my Insat. Insat. Okay. Insat. Uh, and so that brain cells you, a lot. You could, you could make you could make a, uh, a satellite call to the US, but in order to do it you had to walk down to the post office. That's you right. You had to book a call. Uh, you had to pay in advance. And for like three minutes. Yes, it was exactly three minutes, and it didn't tell you. It did, the phone just went dead on you. Oh, well, I have a different story, uh, which was I did my three minutes, uh, but apparently I went over, and then the guy was demanding more money. Now, it might just have been a way to shake me down for more money, uh, but I had no more money. <laughs> I mean, he was very disappointed. I finally slipped him, I don't know, like a $5, U.S. $5 bill, and he was like, ah, grumpy, let me go. Uh, but the ironic, the ironic thing is the, the sound quality on the international calls bouncing off the satellite were generally better than if you called next door oh yeah in delhi because you call next door in delhi you couldn't hear anything <laughs> uh, and it just made me think of technology and the progress so in our short lives perhaps will will cut all of this out for the local broadcasts here in portland and in vancouver uh because this is getting way off script but i'm going to tell the story anyway because <laughs> you take me back to india and uh on that trip we arrived in we we uh we went to we spent a, a month in the hill station in Missouri, mm-hmm. learning hindi badly and then we spent the next two months in delhi 
And shortly after we arrived in Delhi, I was sitting in the parlor of Gopi Pudar, my homestay father, mm -hmm. and we were, I believe, sipping on Fosters, but that may be a false memory. <laughs> uh, and the news came on the air that India had just banned Satanic Verses. Uh, and that was relevant because uh, very recently, as we record this, uh, Salman Rushdie was stabbed for writing Satanic Verses. Um, presumably, yeah. Presumably, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it's just interesting to me. Uh, I was reflecting back on how long ago that was. Yeah, and I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, in India at that time, they had a one television station. Yeah. You had a TV, you had one station. That's it. So... Uh, in our lifetime, and we're not, we're, I mean, we're not that old, let's be clear. Cable TV was well and, and truly saturating American airwaves by 1988, yeah. so. Well, technology is amazing. It's amazing to be able to just chat with a brewer from Glasgow uh, as if it were, you I know. know, in the other room. Yeah. It's great. And I do, like I say, I do Zoom calls. I was on a Zoom call that had one person in England, one person in Brazil, one person in Washington, D.C., and me in Portland, and... Just like chatting away, yep. just like nothing, and that the only difficulty is trying to to schedule these meetings and making sure that everybody is uh, doing it in their in their current time zone. That's right. You try and get the time <laughs> so, zone right. So I had to write these emails. Okay, so nine a.m. for me. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be noon in D.C. It's going to be one p.m. in Sao Paulo, and it's going to be I don't know what at four p.m. in in uh, in London. Maybe let's see. No, that would have been five, five p.m. in London. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, well, so there you go. There you go. There you go, your, your little treatise in progress in technology, especially audio-visual technology. Yes, in the lifetime of two old men. In the lifetime of two old men who talk about beer <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> we get all, get all into podcasts and how amazing they are, but let's that's not. That's right. Because ours, ours isn't, and we just be talking about other people's podcasts. All right, so today we're going to do, I don't know, could we call this a beeronomics? Podcast. I think it. I think it is in the Venn diagram. More is in beeronomics right. than anything Let's else. Let's call it a beeronomics pod, podcast. Uh, we just want to talk about the fact that it's hard out there for a brewer these days. Heat, drought, supply chain issues, metal shortages, war, and inflation. All of these things seem to be conspiring against them. On today's show, we'll have a look at these headwinds, assess how bad they are, and how soon brewers might see some relief. Uh, if <laughs> if we had any amazing insight. Uh, so we'll just sort of talk about it. Uh, all that soon, but first, let's talk about the news. Researchers at UC Berkeley, that's Cal to sports fans, uh, used cell phone GPS data to see how many people are returning to businesses, bars, restaurants, and other attractions in 62 U.S. downtowns. They came up with a percentage of activity compared to pre-pandemic pandemic levels. It's not good. Just four cities have returned to pre-COVID norms, and about half were below 60%. Mm -hmm. A third were below 50%, including Portland, the third worst, at just 41% of its pre-pandemic activity. Salt Lake City, weirdly, is booming, far outperforming even the second best performing city, which is Bakersfield, California, also weird, at 155%. All right, man, uh, you went to high school in Salt Lake City. Explain that. I, I, I cannot. I, I, and that, that was the other thing, too. I did, um, I did click through. I saw this uh, in, a, in a newspaper article, and I had a link, and I clicked through, and there was a graph, and you could, you know, you see, you see the bars, and you hover over them. It yeah. will tell you which city it was. Right. 
I wanted to see, is there, is it like, oh, the Northeast is doing well, but yeah. uh, the Southeast is doing poorly or and whatever. And Mountain West. Yeah. No, it's right. totally random. It's totally random. Huh. Interesting. So I don't, yeah, I don't, I haven't, yeah. uh, but it, but the, the upshot really is just that downtowns are really suffering and you're an economist. Is this, we're pretty far past when I would have expected the bounce back. I know. Uh, I was one of those skeptics about remote work. Uh, uh, because one reason is because in economic yeah you were I remember us talking about that on this very podcast yeah on this very podcast and one of the reasons was because in economic geography and in trade uh, as much as you think the modern world is all about technology and communications and stuff proximity seems to still matter a lot right. so you still get industry clusters in cities for example um, and that doesn't make any sense if you think well distance is gone now because we can all just jump on Zoom. Um, and it's not like Nike is making their shoes here, so why would you want right. Adidas to have their North but American still, America? Adidas is here, Nike is here, Under Armour has a big office here. All those, uh, those that's my class example from the lo lo our local market. Uh, and then in international trade, di uh, distance still matters a ton. Um, right. And even borders matter a lot. Like the Canadian border, the, you know, the, the flow of goods between Washington State and and, uh, British Columbia, for example, versus the flow of goods from Washington State and Oregon is radically different because of the border effects. And so these things still matter a lot. And you just think, and so, you know, that's what I have in the back of my mind. And, uh, uh, and I think about sort of human beings being social beasts and stuff. And right. so all that led to my little, you know, social science evaluation, my own personal social science evaluation that people are going to start returning to offices. They're going to miss the offices. They're going to find the productivity is down. Uh, so on and so forth. And uh, you also suggested that another cultural effect working in the favor of that was corporate cultural effects. So firms know how to operate a business from an office, and that's and they would want to get that back going. Yeah. And then the last is just economics, which is if you have all this empty office space, it's going to become super cheap. And people who might not have otherwise conglomerated into a big office building downtown will say, hey, let's Oops. do that because <laughs> it's so cheap. Uh, and maybe that's still coming. Right. But I have been really surprised at how slow it has been. And you see the effects. Portland, you mentioned here, is one of the worst. And you feel it. You go downtown, especially go to downtown at lunchtime on a weekday. On a weekday. So the weekends look pretty vibrant. And I happened to... Yes, weekends. And I, and I always thought we were... I, so for months I thought we were doing well. But I had to go to the Apple store to get a new battery. Mm -hmm. And I was down there on a Tuesday at 11 a.m. And it was... Uh, ghost town exactly. and it was really yeah. shocking and that's when you realize oh all the office people haven't come back yeah um, so now I'm updating my priors and thinking I have no idea <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just really don't know yeah um, you'd think so but I, I read again that Apple is um, Apple corporate Apple in mm -hmm. Cupertino California is mandating people return again they tried before and then COVID restruck or came back or whatever and, well, uh, and, and Apple might be able to pull it off but well so but that might then embolden other companies say look Apple's doing it so we're now going to do it and there might be a ripple effect but I don't know I don't think it's ever going to return um, to the way it was in the sense that I'm sure lots of places are going to offer remote work opportunities or partial days in the office and partial days at home and those kinds of things. Uh, I still think, I still believe in markets and think that eventually it'll, it'll even out that, that rents will become cheap in central cores and people will start filling in, in those spaces, but, um, could take a while. Yeah. Fascinating so, stuff. Yeah. Uh, interesting research. All yeah. right. Uh, in the next news item, uh, this one close to home in my haunts. So this is from 
Oregon State University. A recent study by our friend Tom Shellhammer. Go look at pods 34 and 35. Look at you actually writing them in. Yes. Instead of just saying, go look at some old pods. <laughs> uh, if you want to uh, see our interviews with Tom and talk about his research. Um, he added further confirmation that hops are highly sensitive to region or terroir. Shellhammer, publishing the data with two co-authors, wrote, Our results revealed a high amount of variation in aroma and chemical composition between and among Cascade and Mosaic hops grown in Oregon and Washington. This regional identity effect was observed on a regional, between-state, and local, within-state level. Yeah. So the flavors and aromas of hops really depend on where they're grown. Yes, hugely. I th- in fact, the more we learn about this, the more I think that hops may be the most sensitive to terroir of any crop grown on the planet. They're just crazy. Um, and if you look, dig into the research, they, there's actually, hop research is kind of complex because you can look at what compounds are in the hop itself, which is interesting, but not actually really relevant. What you care about is what the hop does to the beer. So uh, yeah. they looked at both what was in the hop and also what was in the beer. And uh, in this case, they were different in both places. Yeah. So uh, so obviously this is a big deal in wine, where grape is the only ingredient in wine, and you're getting a single grape generally crop presented in a bottle, and so terroir can matter a lot in terms of how you experience it. Um, I think it's less of a big deal in beer, because the flavors are manipulated often. A number of hops, uh, and there's fewer single... I know Jeff is cringing here but this is my take <laughs> fewer single hop beers uh and so i think that uh, terroir doesn't express itself as much in beer and maybe is less important ah before. so you teased this take before we we spoke and i i, I encourage you to say it on live on on tape and i'm glad i did because it's, it's a bad take okay go for it <laughs> Uh, Smack me down, baby. Yeah, so brewers have become incredibly sophisticated in hop selection. And mm-hmm. so they are now going and they're not looking at hops. Uh, they're not looking at variety. They're, they're looking so at... It's not just mosaic hops. No, they're, they're, they're tasting all the mosaics. And they're like, we want the melon. We want the, uh, mm. the, the passion fruit top notes. And we want this thing. And we're going to keep tasting them until we get that flavor compound. So right. hop selection has become incredibly important. And they don't care... They don't care where the hops are coming from or even what variety. And in fact, in many cases, uh, because hops not only change region to region, but year to year, um, they will switch the, the hop variety to keep the flavor the same. So I think we're, we're actually uh, saying something similar, but in, from two different perspectives. Um, so what I was saying is that if the brewer sort of can uh, manage the flavor profile of their beer, mm. and as you say, they can then sort of go around and select the hops to create. Oh, you're thinking this from an economic perspective. Well, I'm thinking more of a consumer. So if I get the IPA from Oregon hops and I get the IPA from Washington hops, I won't think, "Oh, this is an Oregon IPA," or "This is a Washington IPA," and they both use mosaic hops, for example. Like you're not going to get those subtle differences where, oh, in 2000, this is a 2001 Oregon. Mosaic IPA. Right. Oh, well, this is a two, 2022 <laughs> Washington Mosaic IPA. Something along, along those lines. Like, right. Because it's a, it's a, the recipes um, have m- uh, many, many more ingredients and there's a lot of attention paid to the um, flavor. But I understand what you mean. From a brewer's perspective, this stuff matters a lot. Yes. Well, and also because the hops are so sub- uh, subject to terroir, uh, they're so different that 
you don't have with wines at least you have a pinot taste like roughly like a pinot year mm. to year to year gotcha. and so you know you have that kind of thing whereas who knows what the hell a mosaic tastes like that's a good point yeah here's a fascinating thing on that research that i think i, I will i will present it as a quiz to you and <laughs> okay. listeners as well <laughs> uh, one so they they did two hops they did uh Cascade and Mosaic, and they both demonstrated a really linear kind of relationship um, uh, in terms of alpha acids. Uh, would you care to guess one, one of the two states was was notably higher in alpha acids than the other? Would you care to guess which one it was? Uh, wait a minute. What are the two states? Uh, Oregon and Washington. In both Cascade and Mosaic, one state was significantly higher in alphas. Uh, Washington. That's what I would have guessed. It's hotter. It's, exactly. you know, it's yeah. like going to amp up those things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, Oregon. Ah. It really shocked me. Those are big findings for yeah, me. I don't know why. I just thought of heat, dry. It's got <laughs> to totally. be alpha acids. That's just got to be the thing. <laughs> well, our minds work alike. Yeah. Badly. Completely badly, but alike. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The last one before we get to our, our exciting topic of the day, uh, and it will help transition us into that topic, mm -hmm. uh, is good news. After an absolutely abysmal harvest last year, this year's barley crop has rebounded. The American Malting Barley Association, AMBA, mm -hmm. reports uh, this update from August 12th. Uh, quote, production is forecast at 158 million bushels, up 34% from 2021. Based on conditions as of August 1st, the average yield for the United States is forecast at 66.3 bushels per acre, up 5.9 bushels from last year. So... In effect, what this means is a bounce back basically to the baseline of 2020. Right. Uh, so it's it's like um, that, that it fell about a third. The crop came in about a third uh, or two, two thirds of the normal crop last year. Right. And now it's back to what it was. Yeah. And, well, we, you know, of course, things can change and we have to wait and see. But but right as we speak here in mid August, uh, things are, or as they write here in mid-August, things are on track. And, they, and, the, and the barley harvest is already starting to come in, like only 6% or something. But yeah. So the, the later we go and the more normal it looks, the better things are. So that, that brewers will really appreciate that. So that's, well, that's good, good news. Yeah. Uh, and that is a perfect segue into the topic of the pod. So well done. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Allworth, your writer. <laughs> Uh, because the, let's not draw too much attention to it, lest the listener begin to think that that is expected. <laughs> That's right. You don't want to. You want to set expectations too high. No. You want to set standards too high. <laughs> uh, yeah. So today is kind of a, a, a loose uh, uh, topic. Um, it's a beeronomics topic. We're just thinking about all the different headwinds that brewers have to think about these days. All the ways in which brewing is becoming more uh, difficult in terms of costs and supply. Uh, chain issues and so on. Um, so barley was was one last year's barley harvest was poor. Yeah. Um, uh, before we do so, um, I suggest that since we are in a beer pod, let's drink a beer. What shocking! Yeah. Uh, and we don't really have like some sort of topical beer, but I did actually think um, it's been hot in the U.S. It's been hot in Europe. It's been hot everywhere. Yeah. And as we're drinking this beer, which is one of the ones I would reach for when things are particularly hot. I want to know what are the kinds of beers you look for when it's like really hot? What are the cool, refreshing beers that you would reach for? Yeah, well, you've got one here. It's a Pilsner. Uh, Pilsner. Light lagers. Light lagers are high on my list. Yeah. Uh, I do like, uh, you know, uh, I drank more lagers this year 
even than I normally do. And I and there was a point at which I was like, I need hops. Yeah, I have the exact same. <laughs> I, I've been just like loggers, 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 loggers. And I realized I'm starting to miss, yeah, hops and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say I'm getting tired of lagers. I wouldn't really call it that, but just a little bit of lager fatigue. Right. Like, let's get some more flavors in there, man. Uh, we recently had a, a, a gaming group with mm-hmm. my nerdy friends. Mm-hmm. And um, I told Sally, who was doing the grocery shopping, will you pick up a six-pack of beer? Dealer's choice. And I assumed she was going to pick up a six-pack of, of Pilsner. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a really good chance she was going to pick up what you're cracking at, because this is her favorite Pilsner. Right. So let's talk about it. This yeah. is... The Zogel House Pills. Indeed. One we have talked about before. It was finished uh, third, I think, in our Pilsner Taste Off. Or high, high in our taste it was. Off. It was third, yes. And and Sally was uh, argued that it should have been first, but because uh, she was sitting there watching us taste. Which is a good shot. Sh- sh- shaking her head sadly at our foibles. Yeah. Um, we had three fantastic. Any of the top three were. Yeah, that's right. Uh, however... Um, she did not bring back Pilsner. She brought back uh, Breakside's Rainbows and Unicorns. Oh, yes. Which is sort of the Amazing. the IPA version of a Pilsner. It's yeah. um, 5%, 5.5%, something like that. Low bitterness, but high juiciness. Mm-hmm. Um, Light color. Easy oops. drinking. Yeah. Basically a pale ale, really. But uh, And I got to say that the uh, we put it, I put it in the old beer cooler at uh, the gaming group, and people... St- started drinking it and uh uh it went like that it was really hitting everybody's spot so that's that's a good one because i don't i don't really want to go like pliny the elder like you know big boozy hoppy thing yeah and i think i think these beers for a while they were calling them session ipas and i think now people are just embracing the pale ale moniker again and so you know five five to five point five percent with a bunch of hops i've been really into those lately totally yeah this is such a good beer though our friend Alan Taylor, who made this beer at Zweigel House, uh, was recently in Germany, the old country. Uh, which is blazing hot, which we'll get to. <laughs> one, of the head, one of the headwinds. Yes, that's right. And in fact, I helped him, uh, uh, I helped arrange a trip, I think, and I hope it happened. Um, I liaised uh, so that he could tour, or at least hang out with uh, Matthias Trum at Schlenkerle, which oh. he had wanted to do for some time. So. Yeah, we'll have to get him back on the pod and you can tell us about it. Yeah, that would be cool. This is a fabulous beer. Wow. It is a fabulous really beer. And I've actually not had it in a little while. I don't know why. I've been rotating. We have so many fabulous Pilsners now. I've had Freem. I've had Crux. I've had... So while we're talking about this beer, I would like to point out a key a key thing about Pilsners that I think is important, or lagers. Mm-hmm. This is a high IBU beer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it's got, but it's but he, uh, Alan made it in the North German style, so like a Jaeger uh, style beer. And uh, it's it's made with stiff hopping. But there are, there's this concept in continental brewing, known that which they, they, they talk about as fine hop bitterness. So that's a kind of soft bitterness. It, can, it it's got a lot of bitterness, but it's not grating. It doesn't yes. have that that harsh thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, if you want to taste a beer that has fine bitterness, if you want an example of that, this is a really good one because it's it's high bitter. It's got a lot of bitterness. Yeah. But if it were at all grating, but not sharp edges, yeah, right? like, yeah, it would it would not well wear 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 well, right. However, it actually wears so well that when you first taste it, it's like woo hoppy, yeah. and then by the end of the glass, you're like, 
not hoppy. Right. Yeah, and I think that was a, a problem with a lot of early American craft pilsners. Mm-hmm. Was they just like, oh, let's make this American, throw in some hops, and then it was just like bracingly bitter, and the malt bill couldn't handle it. The um, the balance was all off. But this is this is a perfect example. Of you can you can do hoppy, you can do bitter, but uh, in balance and in harmony. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. Fine bitter. So that's our beer for now. It's it's getting hot here in Portland. Yeah, we're going. Tomorrow's going to be ninety five. No. I know we're going to our last, purportedly our last. Uh, heat wave of, of, of Oregon. It's apparently after the second half of August and later, It's all, we almost never get heat waves, all historically. Right. So I'll, I'm down with that. Yeah, me too. Okay, so let's talk about economic headwinds. Um, yeah. I see the first one is one that I uh, was slightly uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, tweeting about, one of my rare tweets. So it turns out that we're heading into a, a, a CO2 shortage. Yeah. So you wrote one short, uh, you wrote about night shift, uh, brewing had to outsource production because it lost seventy five percent of its CO two. Yeah. So when you're when you, when you've been in New England, are you aware of Night Shift? I'm not aware of Night Shift. No. Yeah, they do. They do really nice balanced New England IPAs, but they're like mass market IPAs. Mm-hmm. They're like you know designed to be sold in a, in a grocery store. Uh, I really like them quite a bit. Uh, and they were up to like forty thousand barrels. So they had big use. You know, they they really needed they need a lot of CO two. Yeah. Uh, you said. Uh, weird causes include contamination of a volcano in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, I thought that's what you meant because you just wrote the MS. And I was like, "What a volcano in Mississippi? What are you talking about?" Yeah. So I wondered. I, I've been hearing about this, and for this pod, I thought, "I so if this is one of those things that if you talk to anybody in the industry, they they're anxious about this. It's a it's a it's a big deal. Yeah. People are talking about the, not having CO two. The the night shift thing was especially pointed, but everybody's having trouble. And I'm like. The hell! It's it's a naturally. It seems like why it just it, it's one of those bizarre things. Like why would we not have CO two? Yeah. Beer itself makes CO two, which we can talk about in a minute. Oh, that was my tongue in cheek tweet. It's yeah. Like, oh, good if news. only there was a good source. Good news, yeah. Good news. <laughs> yeast will make it for you. That's right. Uh, well, it turns out that one of the most important industrial sites, or not industrial sites, it's normally an industrial process that you you get this from yeah. uh, the use of ammonia and other things that off gases CO two and you can capture it. But there is a volcano in Mississippi <laughs> that off gases tons of CO two, which they had been bottling up apparently, and it uh, became contaminated. So that site went offline, and oh, it was no. apparently a giant deal. So who knew? Mississippi. Wow. Imagine the person who figured out they could just sit on top of a volcano and harvest CO2. And I got I want a business. Be, I want to be that person. I know. That sounds awesome until it gets contaminated. <laughs> That's, That's right. Totally sucks. And then you also write the war has cut down on supplies, the war in Ukraine, I assume. That's right. So apparently a lot of these things, one thing as I was preparing this, uh, I, I noticed that these things are, many of them are interlinked. And the war in Ukraine kind of touches on a lot of stuff. So in the production of uh, natural gas, I know I'm already forgetting what the deal is, um, because it, CO2 comes from industrial processes, um, yeah. there's something to do with Russia or U- and or Ukraine and produces refine, CO2. Refinement of yeah. natural gas. So it's, CO2 is a byproduct or something. That's right. And, and so no, I, I doubt very seriously that the United States is getting any uh, CO2 from, from Europe, but you're talking about global, a global marketplace. And so it goes down in one place and then stuff flows into a vacuum and it's got to flow out of some place and it's a big problem. You you can describe that better than I could. Yeah. Well, and I know uh, even though 
Uh, I was being cheeky. Uh, I know that you can't just substitute <laughs> bottle conditioning and cask ale for, <laughs> for kegs and industrial uses of CO2. Though you can. And uh, it, so one of the things about German brewing is it is illegal, according to Brian, well, not illegal, but um, according to if, you, if you're brewing to run high school boat, you can't get volcano CO2. You can't get industrial Ukrainian CO2. Got to come from the brewing process? Got to come from the brewing process. So all the all the larger breweries, I think all the breweries, but certainly all the larger breweries, have these uh, recapture systems. And then, so when, when the fermentation so is So maybe happening, I was onto something. You were totally, huh? I, I, I assumed you knew that. No, I had no idea. Uh, I was just being a punk. Yeah, no. So uh, as, that, as that CO2 is getting blown off, they capture it, store it, and then they can force carbonate with the the CO2 they have made. And, and according to Ron boat, it's natural because it's the beer's CO2. Interesting. So that also true for, uh, I was about to challenge you and say, well, what about um, draft beer lines? But I guess if they're really harvesting the CO2 and putting it in canisters, then they can use that to charge their draft. Exactly. That's how they do it. Ah. And um, <laughs> Boy, the, I'm smarter than I knew. You are very smart. <laughs> the thing is, those systems are apparently expensive. And so for little breweries to... Yeah, and not something you get online. Probably in the next month or two. Probably right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's one of those capital investments that you're looking at. Like, well, should we spend several tens of thousands of dollars on this piece of equipment or this piece of equipment? But um, it makes a lot of sense if you're off-gassing a whole bunch of CO2 in your fermentation process. You might as well capture it. Totally. Yeah. I know it's very elegant. I love the idea. It I just, love the it, idea. It, yeah. yeah. It satisfies my 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 appreciation for elegant systems. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, Oh man, I'm gonna embarrass myself because I've forgotten the term. But what's the term for the farms that only use? Is it biodynamic? Biodynamic, yeah. It's like a biodynamic process. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so yeah, I have no great insight about CO2. Um, there are ways, little ways. I mean, I wasn't being entirely facetious. Like you can bottle condition beer. That's can, right. Can yeah, condition yeah. beer. You can serve in cask, and there are other ways to get around it if you really need to. Especially if you're like a small brewery with a brew pub, you know that kind of thing, or a tap room. There are ways in which you can serve your beer and you can carbonate your beer um, using yeast. But right, yeah, putting it well and. There's one mailbag question which we almost should throw in right here, but then we wouldn't have a mailbag question. We could just we could just mention that there's a really relevant mailbag question coming down the line. Or we could just turn and in, inject it since we're freeform, baby. All right, all right. This is this is a, an innovation in the <laughs> in the Beervana podcast. We're going to switch quickly to the mailbag, uh, and I guess I'll read it since you you know what it is and I don't. Uh, so Kyle Novice, a uh, longtime listener, frequent contri- contributor. Right. Hi, Kyle. Uh, genuine mailbag question. He writes, what's stopping breweries from using bottle slash can conditioning to reduce their CO2 usage amidst this shortage? Yes, it's good. We didn't go back to this. <laughs> just put it right here. So, yeah. So what are the what are the challenges? I don't I think it's just it's just process. Right. So uh, if you have not developed a, a, a process for bottle and can conditioning, um, you have to develop that process. Uh, which you gotta you know, make sure you get it right. You don't you, want exploding bottles or cans. That's bad. That's right. You also don't want flat. So you, you want gotta flat bad. You, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta get the right amount in there. You gotta figure out how long you need to condition it. You need to figure out in your brewery. So now all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of beer that's got to sit there and carbonate in a can or bottle for a period of time. Do you have room? Um, you, you know you're gonna be tying up more 
uh, cans that yeah. cans or bottles that are not in the system that are not being sold. So you yeah. may have to have more cans in your warehouse. Like there's a whole bunch of challenges that that I, I mean I, I'm Especially guessing as that, you get bigger and bigger, it gets harder and harder. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was saying. If you're just a small little brewery or brew pub, there are ways which you probably do it. Uh, by the way, uh, this reminds me that uh, legendary Bridgeport Brewing, rest in peace, Bridgeport. Uh, bottle conditioned its IPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they bottle conditioned everything. Uh, oh, okay. Bottle yeah. conditioned everything, and they were a pretty big brewery and sent it out in mass. So it's not impossible at all. Yeah, no. Sierra Nevada, I, I think, pretty pretty sure they still bottle and can condition everything. I think they mostly can everything now, right? They don't. I don't know. Most people mostly can everything. It seems. Uh, certainly, that was that was the famous. Um, approach to making the pale ale that made them famous for decades and decades and it's possible it's shifted i haven't studied oh. it closely but yeah, i didn't i didn't but I didn't, well and well into the period when they I were making know that or didn't retain that 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 was all bottle conditioned yeah so uh it's possible it's totally possible yeah uh and maybe it's not as hard if you really put your mind to it as we think i don't know yeah. seems, and there's there's knowledge out there so if you're a brewer and you're listening to this and you have more insight on that, I'll yeah. be here for you. Yeah. <laughs> two, two morons just talking about Spitballing. <laughs> uh, all right. Speaking of uh, bottles and cans, cans remain in short supply, uh, in part, as you write, because of declining recycling. That surprised me. Yes. So, uh, I, me too. Um, but it's a, it, 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 this is a new story out of California mm-hmm. um, that a big, uh, apparently a part of that system, and I don't know if it... If it's all the whole state or it's regional or what, but yeah. uh, aluminum um, sourcing comes from partly from recycling, and yeah. for some reason they're having declining recycling. It's one which of the is, reasons I really like to buy cans because I thought they were always like one of the most recyclable materials. Totally. One of the big challenges here, and I you notice I wrote in parentheses bright spot digital printing. Mm-hmm. It, one of the, the the real challenges is, uh, as I'm sure many people have seen. In order, the the difficulty is getting the label on the can uh, or getting it printed. So our the, we're drinking at Zoigel House, and they have um, theirs are printed on. So it's um, it's just it's it's ink on can, right? Uh, which is kind of what you know if you buy Budweiser. That's that's sort of what people know. But if you're in a making a small batch, yeah. uh, then you're in trouble. So yeah. what do you do? You can you can put a plastic wrapped label over it, mm-hmm. which isn't recyclable. Right. Uh, you can put an actual label on it, right. also not recyclable. Right. Uh, so these things really, I think, hamper. And I don't know what they do with it. Like, if you've got one of those, do they do they remove those, yeah. uh, or do they just throw them in the garbage? I don't. I don't know what happens. But your understanding is this ink can they can just separate easily. Yeah. So this is sort of the uh, Shadow Alan Taylor podcast. <laughs> uh, he, uh, maybe. Well, it, it was when we were talking before he was going to go to Germany. Uh, he and he, he he called and said, "Hey, get me into Schlenkerla, man. You know, you know Matthias." Um, uh, and then we were, t- and he said, and he was, and at that time, uh, one of the the mobile canners. Now I'm going to remember. I'm going to misremember the details. I think it was a mobile camera canner, but anyway, some company in Portland was working with uh, Germans who had the technology to to print as small as something like a thousand cans, two thousand cans uh, from a printer onto the can, just like the Zeugel House uh, or Budweiser or anything else. Uh, and they were they were trying to figure out how to get this technology, this printer, to the United States. So if that happens, then all of these 
uh, breweries that have to figure out another technology uh, to put their label on it can just go to this printing tech and right. not only, I think, will they save money, but they will certainly uh, help save the environment. So that's a cool thing. Yeah. And if the recycling thing is an issue, maybe more things will enter the recycle things. Uh, so it could, it could be a really uh, positive cycle. Right. So we've talked in the past about these minimum orders that breweries need for cans and mm -hmm. how expensive and hard that is, difficult that is for smaller breweries. So that's another uh, issue. Uh, by the way, just a sort of a, uh, an offshoot, um, my son tells me this in Oregon. So uh, uh, one of the big producers of aluminum cans in the United States is Ball. Mm -hmm. Ball also is a big, a big producer of the... Um, Mason jar, the jars, the ceiling, right. the ceiling jars yeah, yeah. that you use for like making jams and jellies. ball jars. We call them ball jars. Yeah, yeah. These are making jams and jellies. Well, apparently they're also very popular amongst uh, cannabis producers. Of course. And so if you're like a home uh, person uh, and he lives down in Eugene, and apparently it's particularly an issue in Eugene, you can't find them. Like they're not, they can't keep them on shelves because all the cannabis cannabis people are taking them to. To put their cannabis products in, and so if when you're if you're a home a home jelly maker, you're you're having a hard time finding jobs. That's so funny. Yeah, when you go to a dispensary in, in Oregon, they have they have the cannabis the flower in the in the in the jars. Yep. So yeah. apparently that's uh, you know the market hasn't yet caught up with that apparently. So huh. uh, okay. Another the next bullet point you write here is just general inflation and price sensitivity, and this is fascinating to me. And this is I, I turn to you now, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> so. Patrick, tell us when inflation is going to end and how's it all going to go. And uh, yeah, I have all the answers for you. <laughs> so just quick synopsis. Inflation's been really bad. Two years ago, it started and we thought, well, this is supply chain issues. This is transitory. This is going to be no big deal. Right. I was one. I'm sure I said this on the podcast multiple times. Uh, just like, well, my, I mean, just I mean, like my downtown office prediction. And, and had all variables stayed the same, you may have been right, but they didn't. Uh, well, what I think is that it wasn't as... So this is me. I'm not a macroeconomist, so this is me talking out of my... You know what? Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, what I think was wrong about that was just how long these disruptions were going to last. Like, for example, in China, they're still locking down cities and stuff. And China economy is really kind of cratering a little bit right exactly. now. Exactly. This is one of those factors that did not stay the same. So yeah. you, when you were thinking ahead, you were like, so we're going to back to It normal. was just this weird sort of transitory supply chain caused complications that is causing... Factories were shutting down in, in China. Yeah. Which, like, yeah. Uh, so it didn't just last six months. It's now going on and on and on. And of course, so we're seeing the long-term effect. And that's not the problem. The problem is when everything else reacts to that. Right. In other words, uh, supply chain issues are causing inputs to be more expensive. Therefore, products have to be made more expensive. And because of that, inflation's happening. So I'm going to acknowledge that and compensate you, my workers, for that inflation. That's all of a sudden when it gets baked in and when economists freak out. Right. That's happening. Yeah, and we, right. have, and we have seen, uh, I don't know about other countries, but in the United States, um, salaries are really increased, mm -hmm. uh, which is the baked-in piece, which, which in one way is really good, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, in absence of inflation, it's really good. <laughs> uh, it's true that because of labor shortages, but particularly in the bottom part of the labor market, we're seeing a little bit of a rebound of the divergence that's been happening over the last few decades. Whether that's going to be anything... 
significant in the long term. I don't know. Um, so, so how does uh, so we so the other big thing was the war uh, and how it affected uh, gas prices, particularly oil yes. and gas prices. Yeah. So um, how in, in when when we're thinking of the inflation number, how much of that is oil? Oil and gas prices. Is it is it like five percent, fifty percent? Like what is? Yeah, I mean it's well, okay. So I can't really answer that question. It's funny because they'll do the core inflation, which which takes away some of the more volatile stuff, including energy prices. But the problem is, when energy prices stay high for a while, that bleeds into everything because you use energy to produce almost everything. Right. On Earth, <laughs> and, and and not only produce it, but get it other places. Get so. it other places. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, keep the patio warm, right? Because COVID, you have everyone sitting outside under heat lamps. You know, just like it goes on and on and on. <laughs> right. So energy bleeds into everything, and yeah, the war in Ukraine is a big deal, um, uh, and so global energy prices have been high. Um, so I wouldn't like to give a percentage, but I would just say it's a huge, mm-hmm. it's a huge factor. Even if you take it away, if you take explicit energy prices out, you still have them bleeding into the prices of everything else. And the thing about energy too, by the way, is that there are a lot of ways in which you can react to inflation. And this is sort of a big debate about how we measure inflation. So if you just say, here's a basket of goods, let's just measure how the prices change. Well, as consumers, you'll substitute away from things that get more like you know, I'm eating a lot less beef, right? Right. Uh, because beef has become particularly expensive. And so you adjust. And so the actual effect of inflation can be muted because of my changing my changing basket of goods, right? Right. But energy, you can't really escape, especially in the short term. Uh, you know, our commuting patterns and how much we drive, just to use gas prices as an example, um, is uh, fairly fixed in the short term. Over time, you can move closer to your work or get a job that's closer to you or start figuring out public transportation or carpooling, those kinds of things. But um, So it's hard to avoid energy, and then energy, as I said, bleeds into everything. So uh, prices are going up, and as a brewer, I imagine the big question is how much can we uh, move those prices on to consumers? Right, and then by the way, if you're also a brewer in a tap room or a brew pub, uh, you have these extreme labor, labor tight labor market, which right. is causing you to have to pay a lot uh, to keep workers. Yeah, so in that IRI uh, data that we mentioned last week, where I talked about um, how much more people are eating at home than out, mm-hmm. they they talked about uh, they had a list of. Uh, inflation by product and beer was only 4.1%. So substantially below yeah. the, the price is going up substantially lower in beer than the core interest. I don't know that than other products, let's say <laughs> before yeah. I get into trouble. Um, talking about what I, I, I then the CPI know. or just a general yeah. blanket measure of inflation. Yeah. So um, that's good and bad, right? So that means that consumers are probably less, you know, not noticing that the beer is getting more and more expensive because it's not. On the other hand, um, for the brewer, they're not getting more money for the beer, but they're paying more for all these other things you're talking about. So that that I that bothers me. I, I worry about that. Yeah. So the question is, if you're a brewer, how how much of a price increase will consumers accept? And this is where this whole like self-reinforcing inflation happens because you start yeah. thinking, well, if they're getting paid more and they're, you know, they'll probably be willing to pay more and they understand and all that's true. You see a lot of companies playing games 
which is like, we're not going to change the price of my box of cereal, but I'm going to shrink the box of cereal right. without telling you. <laughs> and I'm especially going to do it in its width rather than its height or, or, uh, uh, or length. Yeah, height, or just we won't fill the boxes full. I mean, we've all had that experience where we open and we open the boxes like this is only half full. What is happening? So it's it's all a way of sort of uh, trying to pass on a price increase to consumer without actually doing a price increase to consumer. And I've complained about this locally, and restaurants do this now. They don't change the menu prices, but then they say, "Oh, we have now a cost of living service charge of twenty percent," right? Which is basically just increasing your prices by 20% without increasing your prices by 20%. So Without telling the customer beforehand that they're going to be paying. Yeah, or doing it subtly on the bottom of the menu. Just these ways in which you're worried about consumer reaction to prices yeah. because consumers have strong reactions to prices. Sure. And you, you do it different ways. So And beer is famously a cheap thing. Like that, one, yeah. of, its, one of its sole, ver- or not sole virtues, but biggest virtues is that it's cheap. So if it starts to become as expensive as liquor and wine, what what's the point? You know, yeah. that will really damage it. And this is interesting because uh, whenever you have a price increase and you're going through a t- three-tier system, mm-hmm. and of course that price increase happens three times. I'm glad you mentioned this. Yeah. And so if I'm just a direct consumer distributor or if, you know, so if I have a, t- a tap room or a brew pub or I'm distributing myself, you have a better ability to limit the actual impact. Right. So it's it's ironic in this stage that those breweries that are going through distributors and selling retail outlets uh, are probably facing even more price pressure. And um, if you remember from last week when I mentioned that IRI data, uh, one of the, the findings was on-premise sales, that is draft, uh, so particularly in, in tap rooms and other places, where you make the full margin. Right. Those sales are not, have not rebounded back to pre-COVID mm. times, so yeah. they're trying. Uh, breweries are having to sell more product through this three-tier distribution system yeah. uh, to keep their production up, but they're making less money and they're getting squeezed now because it's only one of the three tiers they have less capacity to flex that. So yeah, yeah. having just been to Astoria and seeing the. The vast empire that is now Fort George Brewing, yeah. but part of that empire is their whole self-distribution network. Right. I think, wow, you know, this is a great position to be in right now. When I'm trying to limit costs and trying to sell beer, and I don't have to like don't have what we call double or triple marginalization, which is that everyone takes a margin, everyone takes a cut. Mm-hmm. To be used used common language, double um, or triple mar- marginalization. I'll have to remember that. Yeah, so that's the term of art. If you want yes. to sound all smart, but basically, awesome. it just means everyone gets their cut, right? So yeah. if you sell it to a distributor, the distributor sells it to a retail, retail sells it to the consumer. Each time they need a little profit from it. So that's that's what's going on. So what are the what are the we we talked about the barley harvest seems to be rebounding. So that's maybe a little price pressure that's going to ease. Price and also quality, which is a good thing. Do you know anything about the hop harvest in the U.S. this year? Uh, I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, I think it's fine. Because the hop harvest in Europe is in trouble, right? Yeah, we'll talk. We'll, oh, we sorry, have, I'm we have, ahead. Well, we have some reports on that. We can talk about that. In, we can do that now. But. Uh, but energy prices. So this, and it takes a lot of energy to make beer. Mm-hmm. So that's another big deal. I know that uh, crude oil prices have gone down recently, but everyone says this is very volatile. Who knows? And of course, there is a big cartel out there that, there's a lot of manipulation of prices as well. So right. that was Biden's attempt to try to... Part of his trip to Saudi Arabia, which was criticized, was, I think, trying to make sure that they didn't... That they could help ease energy prices. Yeah, you know, I have to... 
you mentioned Biden, and I almost threw this in as a uh, uh, news item. We basically because of the chaos that's happening in, in the in the country in terms of um, Ukraine raiding Mar-a-Lago, like a bunch of <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff in the news. Nobody's really paid attention to this ginormous uh, bill that that just got passed, and uh, I have no idea what's in that bill. It's one of the largest bills ever passed by the U.S. Congress. It's huge. Yeah. And I have no idea. I think it, my guess is it's going to have a ton of effects, um, probably not directly on beer, but, um, you know, there, I, 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 do you have any idea what's in that thing and how it might affect the, the economy or anything else? <laughs> no, I probably should have boned up a little more. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. Everybody was really pissed off about that. And I'm like, do you guys, every, people get irritated when politicians play politics. And I feel like I want to say, guys, grow up. You got to learn that it's like, that's what they do. Joe Manchin wanted to change the name to get this through. And you know what Joe Biden did? He said, absolutely. Let's change that name. You want to call it the Joe Manchin is the coolest guy ever, Bill? I'm going to do her. <laughs> you can name it whatever you want. Yeah, man. it's not, I wouldn't expect it going to have a big effect. It's going to have a big effect on uh, reducing inflation, no. and especially if the idea is that you'll not punish the coal industry in West Virginia so that energy prices don't get too high, like that's not going to have a big effect. Or if you try to uh, make, uh, control pres prescription drug prices and stuff, that's all you know, potentially great in, in a microcosm, but it's not going to have, you know, these right. are big, giant global economic forces at work right now that are causing this um, uh, this inflation. And, and sadly, by the way, if you really want to be depressed, I think that the big thing that's going to happen is a big economic slowdown. Um, maybe not quite a recession, but maybe a recession. That's not not as a consequence of this, but just based on what's Oh, happening. not the bill. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, sorry. I'm getting off, off the bill. Uh, Essentially, but I think that's what's going to really affect inflation is just you're going to have to do the old Paul vocal trick, which is basically slow, slow down, shut down the economy. And I am glad you mentioned that because I had, I had a fleeting thought earlier as you were speaking and I wanted to ask you about it. And, and now um, now you've reminded me, so I'm going to ask you about it now. So so uh, the Fed has been forced to raise to, to deal with inflation, forced yep. to raise the interest rate, yep. uh, which has a bunch of interesting effects and and i at, at some point i mentioned it in one of our oh, that's a good point items. actually since we're talking about headwinds yeah yeah uh, i mentioned our news items at one point that um uh mortgage rates are of course going up and so if you need to take out a mortgage on a new building to put your brewery in it your brand yes. new brewery that's going to be well, a problem but there's there's all these other things so when you talk about what happens with how to, as a layman i'm not I, I have a crude sort of primitive sense of the way that uh, the interest rates affects the economy, like what the Fed does. So unpack that. Yeah, the Fed can't directly affect interest rates. They use open market operations to set their target overnight funds rate, which is basically what banks can borrow. You know, banks have balance sheets that they have to balance it daily, right? And there's withdrawals and deposits and all kinds of things. And so they use this. Okay, getting getting way into the weeds. Let no, me, this let is me, let me back, let I've me never back heard up. Anybody say any of this before? <laughs> let me, let me, Colloquially, let me. they just say they just raised interest rates. Like I can give you eight million articles saying they raised interest rates. They didn't raise interest rates. What are you talking? Yeah, about? No, they buy and sell money. Basically, they they um, uh, through open market operations they they make they make cash more or less expensive. Okay, is is a really sort of crude way of thinking about it, but it's a good 
good sort of way. It's the trigger mechanism that affects interest rates. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And then it just filters through the whole the whole financial system. So banks have a higher cost of their own borrowing. They pass those costs on to borrowers uh, in general. And then there's other things just about the future economy that affects how much people... So, for example, if we think we're headed into recession, ironically, what people want to buy is U.S. debt. And that lowers the interest rate. Mm. The government doesn't have to offer as much in return for borrowing money from you because people want to park it somewhere super safe. Right. Right. So there's lots of things. But I'll just sort of to to sort of not get too far into the weeds say that uh, because inflation is high, they basically need to slow down the economy. And to slow down the economy, you want to sort of make it less easy to buy to to buy and sell stuff. And to do that, you want to make credit more expensive mm-hmm. and you want to make savings more beneficial. And so that's why interest rates matter. So suddenly you You're raise... coming up the works. Yeah. So, uh, so you start buying up cash and sort of reduce the amount of cash out there. And so it becomes a scarce. The supply is low and demand, um, demand stays the same means it's going to be more expensive. Uh, and so... Um, uh, this is affecting everybody, not just home buyers, but yeah, if you want credit to do anything, I want credit to buy a new fermenter, I want a, uh, credit to expand my brewery, I want credit to buy a new bottling line or whatever, mm-hmm. canning line, I guess, <laughs> these days. A new uh, uh, CO2 capture system. A new CO2 capture system, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now it's suddenly much much more expensive than it, than it was before, and that's by design, right? They right. want it to be. They don't want these things to ha- be happening right now because prices are getting out of control, and so it's that balance that they're, that they're sort of working on. Um, so, yeah, so that's what's basically happening right now, and that's going to make it harder to deal with the stuff potentially, like it makes it more expensive to do these things. And so, yeah, I imagine that breweries would do a lot of retrenchment, not be making these investments right now, just sort of focusing on what they've got and trying to deal with prices, you know, trying to keep their, their prices lower and so on. Um, yeah, what else you want to talk about? Here? No, that's fascinating. I, um, yeah, I... I uh... Uh, it's the common prescription and, and, for inflation. I'm curious. Yeah. We have, it has been, I, I looked at the, uh, the, how my brain works. I was curious to find out how, how much uh, the interest rates like, because we're old. And so I remember my parents buying a house with like 10% interest rates. Right. And we got, we got this low uh, interest rate for our student loans that was like 8% or something. Right. And so I wanted to see how long has have rates been low, and and they've been they've been low for fifteen years, yeah. and so people don't really even remember a time when when we had higher interest rates, and I, I and so of course I don't remember how that affects the economy. Yeah, so. they've been unusually low, but there was a period of really high inflation that happened in the late seventies and early eighties, and there was a big uh, and the sort of um, the prescription was to just raise interest rates super high. Um, to make to basically slow the economy down and um, and to combat that process and so that's basically sort of what the Fed now the Fed was being sanguine for a while because they thought inflation was transitory getting back to what we said before right. so they weren't doing anything and now they've realized it's not transitory this is really getting to become endemic and therefore we really need to focus on so they've been aggressive and in raising interest rates quite but still historically they're still pretty low uh, but relative to what they've been yeah it's it's more expensive. All right, so uh, to get back to the beer, I think we're getting pretty close to the end. We, we do have a hops report, which is kind of the last of the uh, global. So it does seem like there's, there's, there's different pressures. There's war, which has all these effects. Yeah. 
There's climate change, which has all these effects. Yeah. And, and by the way, just to talk about the war, we know about all of the grain shortages and the problem of getting grain out of Ukraine. Ukraine is a huge grain producer. Right. And in a previous podcast, we mentioned how you can talk about malting barley, which is a very specific crop and special in, in isolation, but actually it's not. It's part of a overall grain. And so if you need to use malting barley for feed grain, you can use it. And so if it's sh there's shortages in other areas, that is going to bleed into the... That's right. And, it, market, so. and if you don't have enough uh, wheat, um, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if Ukraine is sending a ton of wheat to throughout Asia and, and Africa, then, um, uh, you know, and you're you're in one of those countries, you may look for barley yeah. out of the United States or you're going to backfill it another way. Yeah. So the markets are all connected. That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah. And so that's that's an issue. It's, it is good news to see that some of that stuff is getting out of Ukraine now. Yeah. Okay. So the hop report. So again, uh, we we when we also talked recently about how European uh, the, in Europe there's no irrigation, and so they're they're weirdly slightly less uh, uh, able to uh, to deal with with hot weather that we are here. Mm -hmm. um, so I pulled up what Stan Hieronymus sent out a while ago, maybe like. A month ago mm -hmm. about the hop reports uh, England had that heat dome but apparently it didn't do thing it didn't destroy things so they're bouncing back and hoping for normal weather normalish weather the rest mm -hmm. of the season it would be okay but I'll read what he has for Chechia and you can read Hollertau in Chechia the uh, growth and development of hops was very good until June 19th when unusually hot weather settled in on some hop gardens, the stretching growth completely stopped. For the reason, for this reason, part of the hops will not reach uh, the height of the trellis, according to Bohemia Hops Monthly Report. Uh, as we learned last year, when Czech growers harvested the best crop in 25 years after forecasts called for a below-average hop crop, uh, plants can rally in the last month before harvest. So uh -huh. he's kind of hopeful, but but again, you know, you're you're having heat and drought in these regions, yeah. so that's bad. And he writes, in the Hollertau region of Germany, uh, farmer Florian Seitz, who sells much of his crop to American craft brewers, reports, hops are not looking good. Two major hailstorms hammered parts of the Hollertau, one of them destroying about 500 hectares, more than 1,200 acres. Hollertau growers harvested about 17,000 hectares last year, uh, and recent rain has cooled the region, and Seitz expresses hope that the quality crop may still be harvested. And but weather is weird bad. this way. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had we had that year where um, we had perfect weather until we got a windstorm at Labor Day, yeah. and it and it caused amazing forest fires, and those forest fires destroyed the hop crop because they all got hop taint. Right. So, yeah, until it's in the yeah. warehouse, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. They're both resilient crops, but oh, and one last thing, uh, the Rhine. Yeah, this is the best. I the best saving the best for last. Yeah. <laughs> It is amazing factoid, which I heard just today. Uh, so I, I, I quickly threw it on here. Uh, so the so if you look at Europe, um, there's a lot of coastal areas, but there's a giant area in the middle that's not coastal at all. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they get stuff around is they ship it up and down major rivers like the Rhine. And it turns out that the Rhine uh, has, which is normally a depth of 10 to 20 feet, is down to five feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, which means that boats can barely get up and down it. And in order to do it, they have to have 20% uh, of their normal weight. They're only carrying 20% of their normal weight. That's right. So they're down 80% of their normal exactly. capacity. 
And, That's amazing. And that means, of course, that there's many, many more boats going up and down because they have to send five boats to get the same load up and down. Yeah. And and what's what was amazing, uh, which I didn't write in my little bullet point, but uh, which I was was really shocking to me is um, river uh, water is really efficient in a way, and uh, one barge carries, and I'm not going to remember exactly what it was, but like twenty. I'm going to say 20, 20 uh, truckloads of weight. Right. So it's, they're just, they, you can send a lot of stuff down a barge. Yeah. So yeah. it's a big deal. So this means that all the stuff that we've been talking about, it, you know, whether you're talking about CO2 canisters or barley or hops or whatever, trying to get that stuff around, uh, you have, you have this issue. Yeah. So these are all the headwinds. We got, we got, yeah, a lot of headwinds. war, global warming, economy, like there's just a bunch of stuff and they interrelate, they yeah. interact. They're not, you can't isolate yeah. them. So in the end, if you're a brewer and you're facing all of these increasing costs, labor costs, input costs, uh, shortages that are going to eventually drive up costs, either because like CO2 becomes more expensive or you do other things to make your own CO2 that's expensive. Uh, the question then is how much, you know, where's the breaking point? How much will a consumer accept? And that's the great unknown. Like, I wish I had an answer. Um, uh, right now, uh, the sort of increasing um, wages that are coming with a tight labor market are compensating, and so I think people will ex will ex uh, be able to handle uh, a decent amount of price increase, but yeah, I don't know when. Right. And I mean, I think one way that a lot of people handle this is, is instead of, you know, if you, if you normally drink... Uh, uh, two six packs a week, maybe you, you drop that down to one six pack. So it's not like you don't drink beer, you just drink yeah. glass. And so we've the, the, the two big things that I've um, I'm always curious about, and so I'd love to hear if people have any comments, brewers out there, business owners. How much do people sort of substitute away from more expensive to less expensive beer, mm -hmm. and how much do people just buy and consume less beer in general? Right. So are you losing sales to? to big brewers, macro brewers, or are you offering a cheaper beer with fewer ingredients that's selling really well? Yeah. And how much do you see in a percentage term sales drop when you raise prices? So if you raise prices by 10%, do you sell 10% less beer or what? So right. those are the things as an economist I'd love to know. I, I'm fascinated by that too. And it's interesting if you're a brewery, as an individual brewery owner, you have to make a calculation. So if, if, if everybody is uh, drinking they're not switching to cheaper beer, but they're drinking less beer. Then you try to keep your quality up and keep your prices up and hope that your brand survives intact through this period so that it, you get a bounce back or do you like chase, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of very hard decisions you have to make if you see these habits change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, good luck to everybody. Yeah. Uh, these are not easy times for anyone. Um, and I hope the best for all the brewers out there. Yeah, me too. Um, it's been around 10,000 years. I know brewing will survive, but yeah, it's, certainly uh, will. if you own a brewery, that's <laughs> cold uh, comfort. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jeff. Well, uh, I suppose we should wrap this thing up. Indeed. So a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. <laughs> that helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter and Instagram at beervanapod. Again, I'm curious to know what people have, what brewers are experiencing, brewers and uh, brewery owners are experiencing. Yeah, do ping us. We are, uh, I know we haven't been as reliably 
unreliable uh, this summer as we normally have, so our mailbag's a little empty, so send us your thoughts, questions, comments, uh, criticisms, whatever you have. Yeah. Uh, so Jeff at BeerBondaBlog.com is probably the best way, but also Twitter and Instagram at BeerBondaPod. That's right. We will. I, I transfer those over. So yeah. sem- semaphore, we'll, whatever you got, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. All right. Jeff blogs at BeerBondaBlog, and he tweets at BeerBonda. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics, and he uh, in, he grams from time to time at BeerBondaPod. That's right. Every once in a while. Yeah. I remember it exists. All right. Uh, thanks, Alan Taylor, for this great uh, Zogel House Pilsner. And... Um, Cheers, Jeff. Well, I thank you for your lovely time. Yes. Cheers. (laughs)